I'm Kate Daniels. We are living in a tumultuous time, the intersection of a pandemic and the social and societal crisis that is happening. We can think of it as frightening, but I think we know that change was needing to happen. As a people, as a planet, we could not continue living the way that we were. I appreciate having Dr. Adia Harvey Wingfield with us to share some insights. Dr. Harvey Wingfield is a professor of sociology at Washington University, and she is an author. Joining us now with her most recent book, Flatlining, Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. Dr. Adia Harvey Wingfield, good morning. It is so wonderful to welcome you back once again to our programming. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. We had, uh, I feel, a really insightful conversation a year ago about your book, which was really new at that time, Flatlining, Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. And uh, since then, the world has shifted a lot. This country has really been in somewhat of an upheaval and tumult and I would think that this book is both rel- more relevant, and maybe do you see, Dr. Wingfield, that um, there's hope for more change and advancement going on here? Yes, I'm somewhat encouraged. I think that there's room for some cautious optimism, particularly around the conversations that we're starting to have about systemic racism and the impact that it has on black workers and black individuals in all sectors of society. We're seeing now conversations about uh, racial biases and patterns in industries ranging from publishing to the nonprofit world to medicine and healthcare to education. And I think those are really important conversations to have because the data do show us that there are systemic biases and patterns that result in the dis- uh, disadvantage of black workers in all of these industries. So I think it's good that we're talking about those things. I think it will be best if that talk is followed by concrete action to improve those things and to eradicate those racial inequities. I don't quite think we've gotten there yet to the point of uh, broad action taking place uh, across a number of industries and professions, but I'm hopeful that that will be the next step. And of course, that absolutely has to be the next step. We can't just be philosophizing and having these conversations. There there has to come a, a time where you, you put your foot to the pedal and, and get moving. Yes. I mean, I think if we want to really see these issues change, that's absolutely true, that just talking about them isn't enough. That's the first step, but not the end goal. And that's where you feel you have cautious optimism. I do. I, like I said, I'm encouraged by the fact that conversations are happening. I think that's the first step. But I also think that as a society, we've been in this place before where there have been opportunities to create a racially equitable society. And pretty much at every opportunity, we have not gotten to that point yet. Uh, we've had these conversations, for example, in the post-civil rights era about the importance of creating more racial equity. And what happened in the post-civil rights era was not that we became a more racially equitable society. We continued with a lot of the patterns and mechanisms that maintained racial inequality. And as a result, our schools remain segregated, our neighborhoods remain racially segregated, our workplaces still remain segregated. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we did not put into place policies that were explicitly designed to ensure that those practices did not happen and couldn't 
continue to keep happening. And in the wake of the civil rights movement, often people who raised those issues were silenced or shushed or not taken seriously because the prevailing thinking for a long period of time was, well, we've got the Civil Rights Act. We've got anti-discrimination law. What more do you want? If people aren't advancing, it's because they're not trying hard enough or they're not really serious or they lack a work ethic. And we got to a point where survey data showed that many white Americans felt that they were actually the biggest recipients of racial discrimination. So things like that and data of that sort are some of the reason for my hesitation, that I hope that in this moment and in this era, as we are poised to become a more multiracial society and, in fact, to become a majority-minority society, we're poised to do the difficult work of re-envisioning and rethinking our organizations and our institutions and societies to think about what that means to have a majority-minority society that's racially equitable for everyone and not a society that still continues to engage in the types of patterns and practices that continue to give whites an advantage at the expense of people of color, which has been how the country has worked pretty much since its inception. Yes, indeed. And yes, I think we could be um, lulled into thinking that, well, yes, there was the civil rights movement. Things improved. We can look around and feel that uh, friends that we know, people we associate with, yes, they're in uh, black individuals are in places of some power. We have a, a city librarian who is a black man. We feel that, you know, that we have equity. But in truth, maybe this is still just what we might consider tokenism. Right, right. I mean, again, that's not just my opinion. This is consistently what data shows. We certainly can point to a few black workers here or there who are in high positions in various organizations. But across the board, if you look at the data of who is most represented at the top ranks of organizations across industries, whether we're talking about the tech field, the media, academia, politics, ultimately what you see is that white men are systematically overrepresented despite being a minority of the population. Data do not show that this is because white men are inherently better at management, because they're inherently smarter, because they're inherently more responsible. That is not what the research shows. What the research does show is that there are systemic processes that block black workers and of other people of color when it comes to entering high-status positions, when it comes to finding support and resources in high-status organizations, when it comes to advancing to leadership roles. So it's important to start tackling and discussing those issues if we're really going to make progress in the society. And it really does take all of us. And I think as we view the protests, if we're involved in the protests, we see that, uh, well, there are a lot of young people, which I think is definitely a, a good sign because they are the future. But we, it is cross-sections of ages. And, and we really do see, I think, a, a good diversity present in, in those who are protesting. But as you say, it's one thing to, to be doing this, but we have to then act and, and make, make new policy changes. Right, exactly. And I agree with you that it's encouraging that there are a lot of young people who see what's happening and are outraged and want to see changes. I think that's incredibly important and certainly bears well for where those young people are going to lead our organizations of the future. Uh, so that, I think, is something that's really uh, important and very encouraging to see to see happen. And what do you see for yourself as a sociologist, uh, as a university professor with, of course, 
you know, these are such different times for that. But it, do you feel that from this, the students that are in your classes that are at the campus virtually now, but, but um, as this was getting going? Uh, yeah, it's a little harder to say because <laughs> sadly I haven't seen most of my students in a pretty long time, <laughs> yeah. uh, given the fact that we were pulled out of the classrooms uh, in March and had to go completely online. So I've had far less interaction with my students than I have in pretty much any other point in my career. But I will say this, I've been really fortunate um, at every point in my career to work in institutions where the students were just excellent, top-notch students. They certainly are at WashU. I was at Georgia State University before then, same thing. I was at Hollins University in Virginia before Georgia State. So I've been very fortunate to work at places where I've been surrounded by uh, just really smart, very thoughtful, very focused students who uh, gave me a lot of hope for, for the future. I would venture, even though I haven't had much interaction, like I said, with my students in person um, in a pretty long time, I feel that they are equipped to rise to and meet the moment. And certainly at WashU, I've been very impressed by how diligent and thoughtful and focused my students are and how attuned they are to, to the world around them. So it's hard. I can't say for sure, like I said, because I can't base this on recent conversations that I've had with them. But based on the overall arc of my career, I do think that Students in particular and younger folks are certainly uh, certainly have what it takes and are ready to meet this moment and to push for the types of changes that could lead to a more equitable society. So with that, even though you haven't had a lot of close contact with them recently and just seeing the way that the voices have been really making uh, making themselves heard, that's that's one thing. But then the next step is is taking action. So it's how do how do you see them being able to persevere? What are those steps that need to be taken? So that's a great question. And I think I tend to think of this mostly when it comes to work and occupations, because that's where my research lies. I study and focus on what happens in workplaces and what types of patterns are there and how those patterns can lead to racial and gender inequality. So when I think about what students will need to do when they go into the next phase, it's often in that context. What's going to happen when these students go into the workforce? And from what I have seen of my students mostly at uh, WashU over the last five years has been that I think that students, those students and students broadly of that, that generation are going to be poised to go into workforces and really have the opportunity to shape them in ways that are different from how they are currently constructed. And part of that has to do with the fact that work has changed so significantly already over the last 50 or so years, right? This model that we used to have of people going to work for one company for the duration of their careers and often though that one person being a man in most cases, a white man who could support a family based on that one income and being able to retire from that job with a guaranteed pension and retirement uh, benefit, that's done. We don't, we just, that model doesn't exist in the United States anymore. And I think in all likelihood, it's probably not coming back. So what we have today now are jobs where people, or conditions where people move from job to job more frequently, where workers are expected to be a lot more nimble and able to uh, adapt to different environments and different circumstances more quickly. But what I think that's going to mean, particularly for younger people, is that their ability to adapt and to be ready for changes and to have an outsized sway over what they want organizations to look like, their unwillingness, for example, to uh, sacrifice 
family and personal life on the altar of working 24-7 and the desire to have a work-family balance is going to mean that organizations are going to have to bend is not the right word, but they're going to have to be receptive, I should say, to the needs and expectations of younger workers who are going to be where the future goes. So it makes me somewhat hopeful, again, that younger people who are more thoughtful in many ways about these issues related to race and inequality, who are taking the lead on these protests, may also be the people who go into organizations and say, uh, here are the things that we want to see happen. Here are the ways that we want to see these organizations be receptive to issues of race and inequality. And that when those young people advance to leadership positions, my hope is that they'll be mindful of these issues and these problems and be more attuned to trying to change them from the structures that they've been up until now. And I think we definitely have been seeing that occur over time, but this pandemic has really pushed us and given us the a, a lengthy like experiment to be testing this out because we have to and to see mm-hmm. that these different models are working and that yes that that shift needs to happen and i i yes i think that we're having that opportunity so that and it's the younger generation i think that has a a different point of view as to how they want to work and how they want to be heard and treated um is that your experience too yes i think that's true uh the the caution that i raise with younger people and i tell this to my students as well when well i used to when <laughs> when we had classes in person but the caution that i raise about Uh, younger people, is that I certainly think that they are poised to have the potential and the power to make this shift. The concern comes for me because there still are data that indicate that for many uh, younger whites, even though they are more likely to have more optimistic views of race relations and to want to be supportive of racial equity, they still, in many cases, harbor anti-black attitudes and beliefs that can be more consistent with the kind of broader landscape of society. Now, what I'm citing to you is, uh, what I'm citing it for you is uh, research that's based on data that's somewhat older. It precedes the movement that we're seeing now. It precedes the um, kind of energy that we're seeing right now in terms of people being supportive of change. But I just also, I, I always encourage younger people to be mindful of the fact that while we do see different attitudes from younger people and while we do see different orientation among younger people, we also want to be mindful that for For most whites, again, white younger people live in primarily racially segregated neighborhoods. Yes, many of them grew up with Obama as their first president, which gave them a different view of possibility and opportunity than many older people. But they also are still growing up in a society where their neighborhoods, their school systems, the environments that they're in aren't truly multicultural or inclusive. And often the adults and people around them don't know how to give them uh, the language or the information to to challenge that. One of my colleagues, uh, Maggie Haberman, has written this great book called uh, White Kids about how white children learn about race and inequality. And often uh, they don't, I'll, just, I'll give you the shorthand, they often get either inaccurate or very unclear messages from parents and schools and so forth. Um, so I just raise that because I think it is important to, have a sense of where our possibilities are, but we also want to be clear-eyed about potential uh, limitations. Oh, that's that's such an excellent point. It brings to mind 
because we have this opportunity to be talking about it, it brings to mind how um, I believe it was in the Seattle area, a, a teacher, I believe she was a black teacher with black students in a mixed school, took her students to Washington, D.C., to the African-American Museum. Is that I think it's mm-hmm. called that, correct? Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And and these students were just amazed and overwhelmed by the history that they saw and asked that the other teachers in the school, uh, white teachers, somehow be given that opportunity to go to the museum to see this history and then to work toward incorporating that history into into their academics rather than, you know, the the biased textbooks that exist right now. Right, right. Yeah, which I, I, and that's a great example of the type of important change that can happen in educational settings that is critical and necessary and important, but I think, unfortunately, all too infrequent. And I think, unfortunately, as we're seeing now with the challenges around even reopening our schools in the first place and the financial costs that that will incur that don't from my view, necessarily seem to be forthcoming. We want to be mindful of whether or not schools are really going to be equipped to offer that type of comprehensive, uh, really incisive education. I certainly, Again, data shows that it certainly benefits students to have that information. And as we, again, continue to progress towards a society that's going to be more racially diverse than any we've ever had in the U.S. before, that kind of education and awareness is only going to become all the more necessary. But I worry that we aren't systematically in a widespread fashion preparing our younger people to have that kind of critical information and knowledge that they need. Yes, absolutely. So it's, it's an idea that we, we try to uh, germinate here and spread out and maybe in, you know, if we, and probably we do need to continue in a virtual kind of learning and working atmosphere for for a period of time yet, that um, I know that there are these virtual museum tours, that if there were a mm-hmm. way to in, even incorporate that, that makes it even that much more accessible than thinking of, you know, getting on a plane, taking a trip, hotel costs right. and all that. Uh, being right. able to incorporate it that way might be a, a good avenue. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, by the way, I've, that museum is amazing. I've been to it. It's an incredible, incredible compilation of data and information and visuals and artifacts. And it's certainly a fantastic resource for anyone interested in getting this kind of information. Well, see, now this underscores it that I need to go online and see what's available in terms of seeing it that way. You've got to check it out. You've got to do it. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And and maybe this will inspire others to to look at this tangent because, um, you know, with this pandemic, we need to look at what kind of opportunities is it giving us? It's, it's certainly changing the world. And I, my feeling is we need to take that and make it work for good, not just say, oh, we got to get through this and think we're going to go back to the way things were, which wasn't working, right? Right, absolutely. Right. I mean, I think when I hear people talk about wanting to go back to, quote, normal, there's pluses and minuses to that, right? I mean, certainly... Health-wise, we want to go back to a normal where we're not in the middle of a pandemic. This is not good for anybody, uh, and that's an understatement, I think, of, to, <laughs> to even put it that way. But when we think about what normal, quote-unquote, normal was uh, in other contexts for many Americans, 
normal for many of us was not being in jobs that paid enough to live comfortably. Normal for many of us uh, included underfunded schools that didn't provide uh, high-quality education that prepared people. Normal for many of us was a digital divide. Normal for many of us included uh, police violence that often wasn't met with uh, any consequences, much less any types of changes in policing. So I think we are, put ourselves on better footing as a society when we don't necessarily try to return to the normal of yesterday, but when we try to progress and advance towards uh, a better vision for tomorrow. Oh, absolutely. And and I've really appreciated all of this, what I feel is very important um, conversation and insights, because I, I value your experiences and your research and your well, your life, Dr. Harvey Wingfield. <laughs> we we should, though, touch on the reason that we came together to uh, was about your book, the latest book, Flatlining Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. And the healthcare, which is what you focused on, although you, you also dug into the, the um, social sector, right? Public sector, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But we healthcare, you know, considering what it was when you were researching and, and what's happened now with the pandemic and, and the way hospitals and, and healthcare workers are having having to work and how they're being treated. Uh, what's your take on it? Uh, has Do you think anything is improved or has it made it worse? Oh, boy. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review a couple of months ago uh, documenting some concerns that I had. And one of the biggest concerns that I have as a consequence of the research that I did on black healthcare workers is that I really worry that the coronavirus pandemic has racial implications in another, a number of ways. We've talked a lot about how black and Latinx communities are more likely to face, uh, are more likely to be infected with the virus and certainly more likely to face uh, fatalities as a consequence of the virus. And we have talked a lot about how some factors of that, some reasons for that relate to being more likely to have comorbidities and pre-existing conditions, being less likely to have access to health care, and being disproportionately represented as frontline workers who simply can't do their jobs from home because they are considered necessary and essential personnel who have to be out interacting with people in order to do their jobs, people who do transportation work or people who are working in the food service industries or so forth. So we know some of the reasons why Black and uh, Latinx workers are disproportionately subject to this disease. What I, can, what I think about also from the basis of my work on uh, the healthcare industry is that I also worry about what those disparities mean for Black healthcare workers. And I am concerned that the pandemic and the kind of spotty way that we've collected data about uh, the pandemic and its consequences and the existing inequalities in the healthcare system mean that black workers, black healthcare workers in the field, uh, may be facing disadvantages and issues that are even more pronounced than many of their white colleagues that perhaps we are not addressing and not talking about. I think that may come from a couple of areas. Uh, One of the things that I learned in flatlining was that many black workers, particularly in public facilities, described strains and distance from their white colleagues because they talked about uh, working primarily with low-income patients 
often low-income patients who were people of color, and going into that area specifically because they wanted to focus on those who were the most underserved, but they also talked about hearing your white colleagues stereotype and prejudge and speak very dismissively about those same patients and how that could cause a real rift between practitioners. So given what we're seeing with the coronavirus and given how we are seeing it disproportionately impact communities of color, I worry that that distance and that um, tension is likely to be exacerbated for many black healthcare workers. I also worry that given that many black healthcare workers told me that they go into these areas where patients and communities are underserved specifically because they want to make a difference, that black healthcare workers may be more likely to be on the front lines of this pandemic than workers of other racial backgrounds because they just simply already may be situated in areas where the pandemic is likely to be the worst and where communities are likely to be the hardest hit. So I have some real concerns about how this issue is not just affecting uh, communities of color. Certainly that's really important and shocking, and we should be trying to put together solutions to address that. But I just hope that we're also mindful of and thinking about the toll that this pandemic is taking on the healthcare workers, usually healthcare workers of color, who are more likely to be committed to these communities. And that's not even saying anything about the shortage of PPE and other uh, things that we know are lacking for our healthcare workers across the board. Uh, but I, yeah, I just I, I worry and I have concerns about black providers and healthcare workers taking a disproportionate toll of the burden of dealing with uh, uh, the situation. Thank you. That is really shows us the complexities of it. Of course, it's not a simple uh, straight line of looking at this, but to have you articulate all, all these different tangent tangents of it uh, and to show the disparities that probably are existing, uh, heightens our awareness. And and my hope is that we listen to this and we take this as a point of education that we need to embrace wanting a better, more equitable world and and doing what we can to make that happen. So your insights are just really um, invaluable. Dr. Harvey Wingfield. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. So, and you already wrote a piece on it. So, um, obviously, there's interest, and the message is out there in print. We're we're talking about it, um, and flatlining is still very relevant because it shows from your research just this kind of existence in our society and we can educate ourselves with the reading of flatlining to get more of an insight isn't that so yes definitely i mean obviously i thought of the project did the data collection and wrote it way before anyone <laughs> knew what uh, covid-19 was or had that on our radar but the book is still useful for now especially for readers who are interested in understanding more about how race has an impact on work on workers and how it has an impact in the workplace. One of the things that the book does is to highlight the ways that race impacts uh, black doctors, black nurses, and black technicians, and the way that those racial impacts aren't synonymous across occupational groups. They vary depending on where the workers are employed, and they vary depending on uh, gender as well. So, for readers, who, for listeners who might be interested in uh, trying to get a sense, more, get more of a sense of how black workers are experiencing uh, environments that on the face of it might seem to be places of great progress, uh, Flatlining has some information that um, that might surprise you. <laughs> yes. And th- this is a time for us to really become more informed, more educated, in order to really go forward, as we were saying, with 
all the protests and, and all the upheaval, now we need to really be doing something about making changes. And by becoming more aware and informed, that's how we're going to be more confident in reaching the voices and insisting that, that we make progress, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So to, of course, the book... Uh, available uh, through all of our favorite book sources. I, I like our brick and mortar stores, and people can order it that way. Um, of course, we can listen to it uh, or find it digitally as well. We can download that if that's our our reading method these days. Uh, and to get more information about you, I, I think the last time we talked, you were you were really building up your Facebook and Twitter accounts. Yes, those are still my two uh, social media outlets of choice. So I'm on Twitter at Adia H. Wingfield and on Facebook at Adia Wingfield. So listeners can find me uh, at either either place. Wonderful. Well, I just am so grateful that we've had another conversation. It feels really so significant for this time. I appreciate your awareness, your insights, and uh, that you're so ready and willing to share it with us. Well, thank you for having me back on. It's always a delight to talk with you.